Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael back with you on the pod. Michael, what's happening, man? Here with you on the pod. On the pod. Great place to be. Best day of the week. Wednesday night. Yes, it is. Best day of the week. <laughs> Best day of the week. Um, yeah. That's a little tired. A, that's all there is to say about that, I guess. You're a little sick, so. Man, I last time when we recorded, I said, I'm going to be sick fast. tomorrow, and I was sick the next day. You were sick by the end of the podcast. Basically, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, I went to work. So I'm over, like, the main sickness, but I have kind of a lingering sin- sinus infection, so I feel like my face is going to explode. Um, but uh, I went to work today, and I said good morning to somebody, and <laughs> he goes, Oh, you sound worse. <laughs> oh no! I was like, you "Thanks." You sounded better. <laughs> Day, day's looking up already. <laughs> so oh, nice. yeah, good stuff. So I'll I'll control the the coughing hopefully. But Michael, you may be doing more talking than usual today. Um, uh, so okay, gentlemen. Question of the week. Really curious on your answers on this one. If you could learn the answer to anything, what would it be? What is something you are dying to know that is that you can't just like Google, you can't go find it out, cannot be determined from research, mm-hmm. but something that you have to that that, that would have to be hmm. uh, divinely given to you? Wow, yeah, I didn't think about that that deep. I was just thinking about something that you kind of always wanted the answer to, and. There, there would be a possibility that maybe one of our listeners could chime in and answer the question, but you've gotten super deep. No, not not that deep. I have two. One of mine is, uh, what's the deal with UFOs? Oh. I kind of want to know. Yep. Yeah. That's, That's actually an example. something that came to my mind. Okay. Sorry what to steal What happened at Area 51. I do have another answer. I've got a more spiritual one, though, of oh, course. Boy. Okay. <laughs> You're going to make mine sound so bad. <laughs> of course I, I have that... a more spiritual... I'm joking. Yeah, uh, no, I don't want to go first, though. I was... I mean, before you said that, and I'll, I'll say this first, because when I asked when we were in the green room and we were talking about what we were going to talk about, um, I had something in mind, and this may be something that a listener could chime in, or maybe I can Google, but I have... Oh, for some reason, I've never learned and i've always wanted to know what is the flavor that makes up cool ranch and cool ranch doritos Mm. because i absolutely love it nothing better than getting a loaded chip yeah in the bag it's just ranch right like ranch seasoning i I, is it i think so why else would it be called cool ranch they don't taste like ranch though i bet if you took like a packet of the hidden valley ranch mix and you took some plain corn chips yeah. And toss around. I bet huh. you'd get close. You think? I bet you would. All right. Well, and next... taste, but not look. No. Yeah. yeah. There wouldn't be an exact clone, but you'd yeah. get there. Well, well they do I'll have an ingredient uh, label on the back, don't they? I guess they do, but... They, they, are there secret some, spices? Well, I don't know, but they're not spices that are apparently... I mean, I haven't looked at it, but I'm, a, I'm assuming they're not readily available. Like, I have mm. to almost go to a chemistry lab. Yeah. <laughs> to get them, you know. Which probably means we shouldn't be eating them, right? <laughs> probably. Yeah, it doesn't just say, like, garlic, pepper, yes. onion powder. You know, I don't think it does. It says that. There's azapines and isapines and all kind of peens yeah. that are probably in it. But anyway, that was mine. I'll try to maybe think of a of a deeper one as you guys share your deep 
questions, Michael. <laughs> you guys tricked me. Uh, y'all, y'all were talking about the deepest questions that we had and deep questions of life. And now I don't talking. think I ever said deep question. Uh, I, I just so I misunderstood. That's what I heard. You might not have said it. But, <laughs> so I was initially thinking UFO, but then I was like, oh goodness, I got to get, I got to get my act together here. Um, and so I think about. Um, what I'd really love to know a definitive answer on how long were the days in Genesis 1. It'd be kind of mm. nice. It'd be nice yeah. to have that, like, let's just settle that. Settle it, yep. And yeah. there's arguments on both sides, of course, but I think it would have implications for how we think about science and our world. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I really want to know what's the deal with Stonehenge? That's a great question. Because, so Stonehenge is one of the few mm. places I've actually seen. I've been to, to legitimate Stonehenge, and not the one in Ingram, but like the one in, in England. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Did um, have a bunch of tourists with cameras? It did. <laughs> but we were, we were there in January, so it was kind of the slow season. But it is a very powerful sight to behold, especially mm. if you have someone there who's knowledgeable and is telling you about it. Um, because it's on this kind of low hill and you don't really realize you're kind of walking up a hill, but then when you get to the top and you look around, the rest of the countryside is kind of a little bit lower than you. And so it is a, and like the English countryside just looks like a storybook, you know? Mm. So it is a very kind of interesting feeling to be standing there. And then as you start to learn about it, the ancientness of that thing and the, like how mysterious it is and like why it was there and how it was built, and how it connects with other hinges in the area. Um, like, there's a wood hinge and stuff. It's like, it's some really spooky stuff. And then when you think, like, okay, um, who were the people there? Well, when the Anglo-Saxons conquered England, Stonehenge was there. When when the Romans came to England, Stonehenge was there. Hmm. Even when the, what we would consider the native peoples of England, the Celtic Britons, even when they came to England, I think... Stonehenge was there. So like they had a, they had an idea, like a category of people that were like the forerunners that came and built Stonehenge. And this was like the people who were in Britain before the people who were in Britain before the people who were in Britain before the people who were in Britain when we think of Britain, you know? And, um, so it just blows my mind, the ancientness of it. And Mm. I'd like to know what's the deal with that thing. Yeah. So Mm. yeah, Stonehenge. They have one rock there that you can touch. Uh, you know, everything else touch. is pretty yeah, you, you guarded. To, yeah, Interesting. Stay away from it a little bit. But, yep. Well, I got no other deep questions, but uh, real quick, just for the listeners, uh, if you hear like a popping sound, and it probably should be subsiding here pretty soon. Uh, new pup in the house, and he is intensely working on a nylabone. So uh, I imagine in the next couple of minutes, he's going to get very tired. Um and right on cue. Yep. Yep. Right on cue. <laughs> so that's the noise. Uh, but all good. All good. No worries there. Uh, well, folks, well, if you've been with us for a couple of weeks, you know that we're in a series working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, uh, spent some time looking at the Beatitudes and want to kind of pick up there and go into the next section. And I think as the segue into the next section, which discusses the topics of salt and light, um, I want to I want to call out uh, verse ten of Matthew five. So this is kind of like the second to last beatitude, which says, 
Um, and I'll read through the end of that section. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of false, uh, all, uh, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, Michael, this is the last couple of sentences of the Beatitudes, this kind of nice and repetitive series. And right from there, Jesus launches into, um, you are the salt of the earth. Mm -hmm. So um, why don't you take us through this little segue here and then um, uh, give us the key points for salt and light. Yeah, uh, there is a a transition happening here, but you, you still are in the Beatitudes in verse 10 and 11, which you just read. And remember last week, we talked about the word blessed being happy or fortunate. And so Jesus is saying, fortunate are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Fortunate are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And the thing that stands out in those two verses to me is we are fortunate if we're persecuted for righteousness sake or if we're persecuted uh, on Christ's account. And we've likely all heard this before, but we're not out looking to be persecuted. We're not out seeking uh, slander um, or uh, judgment uh, or um, uh, insult, uh, but we should expect it if we're following Jesus. Um, and we should welcome it if uh, we receive it for following Christ. We should probably be uh, a little bit... Um, we should question it uh, if uh, we're receiving these sort of things for uh, opinions that we hold dear um, or traditions that we'd like to see implemented uh, in um, society at large that have nothing to do with the Bible or following Jesus. Um, you know, you're not blessed if you're persecuted for being a jerk. Um, you're blessed if you're following Christ. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, righteousness sake, what does that mean? I mean, you think of what is righteousness, it's love of God and love of man. And so if we are persecuted for loving God and loving our neighbor, if we're insulted, if we're slandered for those things, fortunate are we according to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to think that that fortune that we're going to experience, we're fortunate because we're going to experience payment later on. Um, we will be rewarded uh, for following Jesus through persecution. And we won't be rewarded this side of heaven, but on the other side of heaven, um, a saint will receive his reward for enduring those insults and slanders for the sake of loving God and loving neighbor. Then we move out into the idea of Jesus talking about salt and light. And these are two metaphors um, that uh, we'll probably spend most of our time on tonight. Um, but just to recap the Beatitudes, they are descriptions of what it looks like to be a citizen in God's kingdom. They're characteristics of a disciple. And um, salt and light is really filling out for us what it looks like to move out into our culture as followers of Jesus. What kind of effect are we meant to have as we engage with our friends and our neighbors? And the thing, the word that stands out when you think about salt and light in the first century culture and context is conspicuous, being unable to hide. If salt is on food, if light is in darkness, you cannot hide those two, those two um, elements. And so um, 
the word conspicuous is a good one to have in mind as we think about what Jesus is trying to teach us in this passage. Jesus is telling his followers that they're called to stand out. Their, their presence is meant to be known. They're called to engage deeply with the culture in which they find themselves. In other words, the world should know that we're here. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's worth noting, too, that uh, when Jesus uses you in verse 13 and verse 14, it is not a singular you. It's a plural you. And that's just kind of New Testament 101. Uh, most of the time when you see you, you're reading a plural form of that word. And so Jesus isn't talking primarily about individual Christians when he calls his followers salt and light. He's talking about his community of disciples, the church. Um, Jesus is calling his church to be salt and light in the world. Now, of course, there's an individual and a corporate aspect of what Jesus calls us to in every area of our lives. Um, But primarily, uh, Jesus has uh, his community in mind when he's speaking here. And according to this passage, what that means is that the world needs the church. Now, the world needs individual Christians scattered, um, but our culture, our friends, our neighbors desperately need for the church uh, to embrace our identity as salt and light in this world. Um, and Jesus uses the most conspicuous things known to the first century world as illustrations for who we are, salt and light. They're items that played a daily role in everyone's life in the first century. And um, and we can move into talking about what the metaphor of salt and the metaphor of light uh, actually mean um, in that culture, mm-hmm. but um, would love to open it up yeah. to see if you've got any comments or insights no, I, before I, I keep droning on. I think those are those are good points, and, and let's get into that first metaphor here. Um, starting in verse 13, it reads, You are, are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how, sh- how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Yep. And so... Like we mentioned, you'd be hard-pressed to find two more important daily items in the ancient Near East than salt and light. And salt was such a crucial item for folks living in the first century. In fact, you mentioned it before in the green room. It was so crucial that the most powerful economy and army in the world at the time, the Roman army, would pay its soldiers in salt. Yeah. And you mentioned the word. What's the word? Uh, salarium is was the word for the soldier's allowance, which was paid in salt. That's yep. where we get the word salary. Yep. And it's also where we get the phrase of someone being worth their salt. Um, And so there's a historical aspect to that and just highlights the importance of salt in that day and age, if you could be paid in that commodity. Um, But think about salt for a minute. Through the centuries, it's always been used as kind of a, a seasoning. But in the first century, it had another important purpose. Salt was used as a preservative. It kept meat and other foods from spoiling because no one at that point in time had refrigeration. Yeah. And I I mean, this is so simple that it's hard to even, you know, say it without smiling and laughing. But I think oftentimes we do read the scriptures and we're thinking of our 21st century American culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we cannot do that. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we always have to keep in mind is we've got to place ourselves in the original context, in the original culture. And what they would have been experiencing because um, the authorial intent of Jesus uh, was geared towards his first century hearers. And so in order to keep food from going bad in the first century, people would encase meat with salt so that it wouldn't rot. 
So in this passage, Jesus is saying that our culture will rot without the influence of the church. He's telling his followers that they engage with the world. They are salt. And notice how definite the description is. Jesus doesn't say uh, in verse 13 that you could be salt, you ought to be salt, you will be salt. It is a settled fact that his followers, his church, is salt. And so even here, Jesus has a high view of his church. Uh, in their calling in this world and in the culture. And and notice uh, the definite article Jesus uses in verse 16. He says, you are the salt. And I take that to mean we're not a preservative among many others. We are the preservative element in our culture and in our world, the hope of the world and the way that it keeps from further decay, because that's what salt did. It kept food from decaying. And so this implicitly means that we live in a world characterized by decay. Uh, we live in a culture that's prone to fall apart due to sin. And so the current world that we live in naturally moved towards towards disintegration. Jesus knows that. And he's saying that as his followers, we are the preserving effect that he has in this world. We keep things from falling apart. We keep things in our culture, in our society from experiencing decay. And this means that um, as followers of Jesus... We're meant to to run into places when other people might run out uh, to stay engaged. Um, I think of a quote from Frederick Beekner uh, or um, that I have here. Let me try to find it real fast. I've got some notes in front of me. Um, here it is. Um, actually, it's Frederick Bruner, not Beekner. Uh, Frederick Bruner, who writes an excellent commentary on Matthew uh, and then John. And if you're in the this is a little rabbit trail. If you're in the um, uh, market for a commentary on the Gospels, that is the one you should buy. It's fairly expensive, probably $50 a pop. But if you buy his Matthew commentary, you've got the synoptics covered. You buy his John commentary, you've got John covered. And so you've got all four Gospels covered. Mm-hmm. Um, really great commentary. Uh, but he says this, Salt does not exist for itself. Christians should not exist for themselves. Salt a centimeter away from food is useless. Christians not living for people out themselves outside themselves are worthless. Um, and so this whole idea that, that we are actually meant to um, be engaged with people. Um, and so you think about relationships in your life. Um, you think about uh, staying engaged in, in cultural systems and in, in art and public school. Um, all of these places uh, where uh, decay is experienced, the church needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you've got to be wise about that. It might not be the best situation for you in the season of life that you're in and, and given your certain circumstances, um, but the church is meant to intervene and to keep the world from decay. Um, and so uh, I wonder where we see decay. Um, when you get uh, together with those closest to you, what aspects of culture do you tend to lament And um, a good first step would be to at least move into those areas with our presence um, because we are, according to Jesus, the salt of the the earth. Um, And so as followers of Jesus, we're called to enter those areas to preserve. Yeah. And when you think about it, it's what Jesus did with us. I mean, um, he entered into areas of decay. and he was sinless, perfectly righteous, unable to sin, uh, but he entered our lives in order to preserve and hold together what's prone to break down. 
Um, and so uh, he's calling us to emulate him here. Um, but salt also has another characteristic. And, you know, there's a little bit of a debate here. What does Jesus mean when he uses the word salt? Um, is he talking about preservation? Some folks make the argument that salt was actually used to um, fertilize soil in that day and age and, and cause growth. You would throw salt on soil in order to kind of uh, mix it in um, and, and see some, some more fruit. Really? Because uh, I thought if you salt the earth, that, that means nothing would grow. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've heard that to be the case. That if, I mean, I don't know. I, the salt of the earth, what is that? I, I mean, I don't know. Um, but, um, uh, we'll have to, we'll have to table that one, Jacob. <laughs> I'll have to go look at that. Cause that's, that's off the top of my head, but I have heard folks make that argument, um, that salt had other, um, other purposes than just for preservation and, uh, just for enhancing taste. Um, and so all that to say, um, there was some debate on what is Jesus talking about when he's calling us salt of the world um, or the salt of the earth. But um, something that we all have experienced with salt is that it does enhance taste. It's used as a seasoning. Yep. And so think about how salt affects the food that we eat. I mean, um, if you've ever had, you know, for instance, a chocolate chip cookie baked without salt, uh, it's pretty gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, the idea that that salt is a, a major element in um, uh, bringing uh, flavor to the food that we eat uh, is a big deal. And so there's also uh, an aspect where we come alongside and encourage um, what you might call the God flavors that we see in this world. Um, and so when we see love, we want to enhance it. Uh, if we see integrity or beauty or faithfulness in marriage, we praise it. Um, uh, we enhance that. Do you see a job well done, creativity, nobility? You appreciate it and you work to bring out that flavor in others. And so help others see and experience God's work in this world. You can help them taste his goodness in them. Um, and at the bottom line, Christians are called to increase the flavor of life. And so... Um, when you think about salt, that's what we're called to do, preserve and to season as we engage the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not to uh, maybe not to completely destroy the earth by salting it. <laughs> that might be the case. It might be very well be the case. <coughs> I have a couple of thoughts. Um, on the seasoning question, and I don't exactly know where to take this metaphor, but let me just throw this thought out there. Um, if there's no salt in a dish, uh, it is bland and unenjoyable. Just the right amount of salt in a dish brings out all of the best parts of the flavor. It melds the flavors together to create a more cohesive dish. If there is too much salt in the dish, then it's gross. And way too much salt can kill you. Like in one time, it's like literally poison. Mm-hmm. Um, is there an element to that in this metaphor here? And the where I'm thinking about it is like prudence and wisdom in deploying one's saltiness. Mm-hmm. You know, because you can like you can overwhelm a person or group of people or institutions with your Christianness, thinking that you're being salt, when in actuality you're 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 
you're being a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> you may need to rein it in just a little bit in order to properly flavor life and, and be the thing that you're called to be in that circumstance. You could play this metaphor out in that way. I, I'd be careful, and I'm sure you would be too, uh, to say that not sure that's what Jesus had in mind. Okay. Um, but um, beyond the preservation aspect, in fact, I'd say that that some of this is us playing on the metaphor. Even yeah. the enhancing of the taste, I think, um, could potentially be us playing on the metaphor if preservation was the primary use of salt in the first century. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to understand what were folks using salt for in that day and age. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I'm with you there. I, I think that you know that makes complete sense. Yes. Yeah. How are we appropriately um, seasoning? Uh, the, the culture and the relationships right. that, that we're engaged in. You even think of kids these days talking about, man, he's salty, you know, like, <laughs> um, and that means like <laughs> a little too much there, you know, like tone it down, man. Yeah. Um, and so we want to be the uh, appropriate amount of salt and not spoil the dish. Yeah. The other thought I had is when it comes to salt as a preservative, two aspects here. One, um, Michael, have you ever cured your own meat? I have not. Neither have I. But from what I understand, when you cure meat, it's very important um, to, one, it's also like all the cured meats and stuff that we like, like, you know, capicola and uh, and prosciutto They're and all that. very bad for you, right? Well, it's just raw meat, you know? Yeah. Like, it's not cooked. Anyway, um, when you're curing meat like this, you have to get salt everywhere. If you miss a little like nook or cranny, especially mm-hmm. like where the butcher took that muscle out and ran the knife along, if if that knife kind of nicked into the muscle at all, you've got to get salt all up in there because any amount of flesh that's that's not properly salted, that's where rot will yep. – it can start to spoil there and then spoil the whole piece. Yep. So on the one hand, like Christians need to kind of be – scattered sufficiently and like mm-hmm. in in every aspect of the world but more importantly than that but kind of goes with it is if you salt a piece of meat and hang it up to cure um the salt doesn't have to like do anything the salt doesn't have to follow like a seven point strategy or anything like that or the salt doesn't have to follow like 12 steps to success in being salty or preserving the meat, right? Mm -hmm. The salt just has to like be there. And so to a certain extent, you use the word presence a lot. And I think that's a good, a good term. Like as Christians are, our simple being there and existing in whatever sphere that is, is a preservative quality. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like, how do we be salt? Well, there might be an element of like, there, there might be something there, but, the other part is like we don't we we just are salt like just our presence there has a preservative quality mm-hmm. it's not necessarily something that salt has to do to do its job of being salt sure yep simply follow following jesus and being in the presence of others is is normally sufficient um Jesus picks up on the I don't want to cut you off any other no, ideas no, that's on it, salt that's it cut away um uh, but the other metaphor that he talks about is in verse 17, uh, where he calls his followers the light of the world. And you might know that in the scriptures, light normally is used to describe God himself. And so to encounter God is to encounter light. 
John 1 actually says that Jesus Christ was the light of the world who stepped down into darkness. And then in verse 4 of John chapter 1, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines on the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And as we think about light, you can think about light for two different purposes. Uh, Light is meant to expose and to illuminate. And as followers of Jesus who are the light of the world, we are called to expose the darkness of the world, to bring light into darkness, but we don't stop there. We're also called to illuminate toward the truth. And so we don't just expose for exposure's sake. We're meant to point to something. Uh, we expose the need and lead people down the path towards truth. And you see it through the Old Testament. The God's people had this same calling to be a light to the nations, uh, that's a phrase that the prophets would use in the Old Testament to um, describe the mission of God's people to be a light to the Gentiles that brought them to God and His truth. Now, they completely failed in that mission, and that's why Jesus had to come uh, and be the new Israel. Um, but we see it in Isaiah 49 where God says, I will make you, talking to uh, Israel as a nation, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Um, and so it was kind of always uh, um, the, uh, the mission of God's people. And, and you can see the scope that Jesus intends for this kind of ragtag group of followers in verse 17 When he calls them, he doesn't say, you're the light of Galilee, because that's where they're at. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. where his mission starts. Or you're the light of Israel, or you're the light of the Mediterranean basin. He says, you're the light of the world. And so it's not just one local um, context. It's this small little group is going global with their mission. And um, it just would have... I mean, thinking about it right now, how melodramatic it might have felt to them to be. Almost when Jesus says this, I picture disciples kind of looking around like, who's he talking to? (laughs) Really? Really? This group? Is somebody else here that we don't see? Um, but, But this can happen in our lives as we connect ourselves to the source of light. We We can be light only as we're connected to Jesus himself. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so as followers of Jesus, we've been called out of darkness and into light. And we have no real light in and of ourselves. We're reflections of light. And, you know, you've heard the illustration used of the moon and the sun. The moon has no no light in and of itself. It's reflecting the sun. And it's a really beautiful picture. It's a great picture of what we're doing as the light of the world. We're reflecting the glory of God and in and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit as we engage with others. And so that's really the idea that Jesus is getting at in this passage. We are called to be reflectors, to move out in love and integrity and to point people back to the source of that love and integrity. Um, And you also have to think about how much comfort light would have given to the first century followers of Jesus. I don't know if you like to be in dark spaces for very long. Most people don't. Uh, and I was just commenting on, in the green room. I love that we call it the green room, by the way. Um, but well, that's what it's called, right? Yeah, it's that room right over there, right there with all the with snacks. All, yeah, with all yeah. the uh, bourbon and snacks yeah. in it. Um, and uh, big thank you to Chick Fil A for catering. Today, amen. By the way, it's amazing. Man, um, awesome stuff. And uh, you know, you didn't have to bring the bags that we can take home, and, <laughs> um, but that was just a nice touch. <laughs> 
Um, <coughs> Christian chicken, you gotta love it. <laughs> the, the Lord's chicken. <laughs> Amen. Um, but how much security and safety light brings. And we were talking about how I'm looking at 15 lights right now, you know, and you just flip a switch and you, and you have it. But in that day and age, light would have been a valuable commodity. Um, and it would have been essential to be able to operate uh, when the sun goes down at six o'clock here. Yeah. Um, we can still operate for another six to 12 and we can operate 24 hours a day now because we have light. Um, but light and salt, very important, crucial. Um, and so um, uh, when I think about um, exposing, uh, when I think about illuminating and preserving and enhancing the thing that we have to offer this world and our culture and in being conspicuous is our own holiness um, and our own righteousness. And that's really what Jesus is saying. You are going to be persecuted for righteousness sake. You're going to be persecuted because of my account. Um, and so um, holiness is actually a word that highlights difference. Mm-hmm. It, it literally means to be set apart, to be conspicuous in this world. Um, and so that's why Jesus moves on and says, what good is light hidden under a bushel? And if salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? Um, a light hidden under a basket is not good for much. Um, and it's in our difference uh, to the culture um, in the fact that we are holy or set apart that we actually find our power in our influence and that's really the main point that Jesus is trying to to get across here in these short few verses. Um, and so, in our case, it means that our calling. And I like how you um, enjoyed the the word presence. Um, it's to be where you are strategically and prominently. Um, and it doesn't mean overwhelming people uh, with spirituality. Um, you know, that's more annoying than anything else yeah. to most people. If we're just going to be on, let's be honest tonight, right? I mean, if, if, if you're overly spiritual, that doesn't tend to be received well. Um, but if you're, we don't want to be eye rolly. We don't want to be eye rolly, but we also don't want to be scared. Right. And so if you're thoughtful, if you're loving and kind and gentle, and you're authentic in the way that you talk about Jesus. And I used to have students at Trinity University say, you know, I just don't appreciate when we shift down hard on, oh, we were talking about, you know, what you're doing over Christmas break. And then all of a sudden we're talking about how's your soul, <laughs> you know, and yeah. that's okay. <laughs> but like Christmas break was spiritual just as much as, you know, feeling the need to shift down. Yeah. And I'll say this, um, to, I mean, not to my own credit. They say they appreciate that I didn't do that. Come right? on. And so um, uh, there was an aspect of all life is spiritual. Yeah. Just be present. And as you have opportunities to speak life into into people's situations, do it. But don't feel the need to, okay, now we're talking about secular things and we're talking about spiritual things. That's a false dichotomy that we're not allowed to have, mm-hmm. which is actually probably a podcast for another time. Ooh. All things are spiritual, um, and uh, and so we don't have to feel the need. Yeah, But we can be salt and light, too, by telling the truth in a culture that's starved for it. I mean, I, I share what you shared earlier, Jacob, about um, just the the mundane aspect of us telling the truth consistently and faithfully over the years is probably going to make us stand oh, yeah. out eventually. I'd love to, I thought that was a, a really um, wise insight. Well, I had to take a break from eating chicken nuggets, but yes, of um, course. 
Yeah. So we were kind of discussing, I don't know if, if you brought this up uh, in relation to what we were going to talk about on the pod today or, or not, but it kind of goes with it. So we were talking about like, where's kind of a, we kick around this stuff a lot. Where's the church's role in, in culture and how should the church uh, push back against decaying culture? It kind of goes with this salt and light idea. And, and I have this thought that as the culture becomes more reckless and, um, and we start to um, assent to things that are, and I'm going to use this term in its most literal, non-emotional sense possible, absurd. So like there's an absurdity in culture. And I mean that kind of in an objective way. Um, as that is increasingly the case, there's going to be people who are level-headed, ordinary, reasonable people who are going to look around and are like, the things that used to just be ordinary and reasonable and given are are now seen as like heterodox ideas. Well, in that situation, the church is going to start to look in contrast to a reckless culture as a place, as like the last bastion of reasonableness. And so there will be people who have perhaps never darkened the door of a church before who who aren't Christians. And um, like as society starts to become reckless to the point where we've lost definitions of certain of simple things like what is a man and what is a woman. That's the example I gave before. It's a hot topic. Um, not trying to be, you know, transgressive or anything, but just like that's a hot topic. I think everyone kind of knows mm-hmm. it paints the picture. Um, well, if 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 such a simple thing that ought to be taken for granted is now seen as controversial or heterodox, well, that is definitionally absurd. And so a non-Christian but level-headed and reasonable people uh, will, will get to a point where, by contrast, the, the church will appear, in at least in certain areas, to be uh, like this last home of reasonableness. And so I think the church has to be, uh, should hold on to that very tightly to understand that a, a culture that's becoming more reckless means that the church should not become reckless in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. but should just kind of hold on to um, the things we've always held on to and being reasonable all the way through. And we'll come to a point where there's going to be people looking at the church that have never looked at the church because we're saying things that that we've always said that used to never be impressive or profound, but are now this kind of refreshing breath of reasonableness. Yeah. And I think about the increasing aggressiveness of our culture and unreasonableness, and it doesn't necessarily call forth, or it should not call forth, an increased aggressiveness from the church. Yeah. We can simply continue doing what we've always done, um, highlighting biblical principles. You think about highlighting the beauty of marriage, the beauty of a biblical sexual ethic, treating people with compassion no matter what their race is because we're all made in the image of God, being patient, loving with our children, standing up for the unborn, being a friend for the lonely, caring for the widow and the orphan. We live out our callings in these mundane and normal ways, and as the world grows more aggressive and chaotic, that begins to stand out more. And so I, I love that point. Um, 
that you're making. But it doesn't just stand out more. It, it, it can be attractive to some like, oh, man, these folks are reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's, you know, gravitate more towards them. It can also lead back to what Jesus talks about the end of the Beatitudes, more persecution. Yeah. Because people are either going to hate us for what we stand up for and, and how we follow Jesus and love God and love our neighbor, um, or they're going to be strangely attracted to us. Um, and so you kind of know you're in a sweet spot if you're experiencing both of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have some that ridicule and some that are attracted and might pull you aside and say, I kind of want to hear more about what you believe and where you go to church because what you're doing is is so abnormal and it, it, it's attractive. And so that's that's a good indication. Um, and... Um, but yeah, salt and light, um, and it all leads to uh, Jesus says in verse sixteen in this in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so we're meant to be conspicuous, um, so that more people might come and give glory uh, to the Father. And um, and yeah, it's I mean it's just it it. it it's it's a it's a nobilizing passage because it says that we can all have an impact. Mm-hmm. That's what Jesus is saying here. Go have an impact in this world, um, and and so at the end of verse sixteen, he says um, that that we get to call God our Father, um, and that's that's amazing. So um, live as salt and light, so that others might come to know uh, God as as their Father as well. I guess is what Jesus is trying to yeah. encourage and compel us to. Yeah. Good stuff. Can I throw something out there for you guys? Because I, I do want to make sure that, um, and I think folks are, are hearing you right, uh, but I just kind of want to make this dichotomy or comment and then see where it goes. And hopefully it's coherent. Um, when you hear the term being salt and light, and when you bring that phrase into modern day 21st century life, um, I'm correct in hearing you guys when I'm, that doesn't necessarily mean being a, attempting to be or being a social media influencer, correct? Uh, I've been told I do not have the body of a social media influencer, so <laughs> I hope you're correct there. So. I certainly hope so as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't think so, but one of the things that when you, when we hear this passage, um, I, you know, the, the idea, uh, and maybe it's just evangelical circles and, and, and maybe what we're bringing to it um, is that almost where it's a missional, absent, outside of normal day-to-day life kind of calling. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe the wrong way to interpret and kind of like akin to what Jacob was saying. I think mm-hmm. you guys have said it. I'm just trying to process it in a way where salt and light um, is like at your jobs. If your kids at your school just doing things with God in mind and to his glory and not to standards set by men, which sometimes are lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and working towards a different purpose in the like the mundane areas of life yep. that aren't 
extraordinary that aren't going to get the press that aren't on Twitter or mm-hmm. Facebook. Uh, it's not fighting the social media wars uh, and lending, you know, I, I don't want to be too critical of the social media folks, but you know, in, in a way it's like in, in not being another clown in that circus. Um, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of the little things with your, with your neighbors. Yep. Uh, and so I, I, I kind of wanted to throw that out there cause you know, the salt and light thing, I think you guys are hitting on and, and I think the one thing that I see and then I'm like, ah, we got maybe, I know I have to be careful of it is making sure that if we are attempting to be salty or light in, in maybe a certain area that we put the work in. Mm-hmm. If we, and what I'm saying that if we want to comment on certain aspects of culture or we feel like, oh, God's calling me to comment on this, that we don't aren't Christian parrots that just take what we hear from those who quote unquote have a platform. Uh, and then because we like what it sounds like, we then are just running around like parrots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh, I'm being salty because I'm saying what so-and-so said on a podcast and, but you haven't done any of the work. You haven't really processed it yourself. Mm-hmm. You are, are simply, uh, Attempting to be salty, but you're probably not being that salty and not being as much of a light as you could be by saying, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. Let me or go you're research being, it. You're being salty in the way the kids say salty. Yeah. You, know? okay. so you yeah. should be salt full, but not salty. Yeah. You know, also I think of social media and I think about uh, two aspects of it and I'm not dogging social media, it's entertainment. Um, but um, we're exposed to more information than we can handle. Yeah. And so it violates our humanity. And when Jesus calls us to be salt and light, he's calling us to be embodied salt and light. I mean, he obviously had no conception of the reach that we could potentially have today mm-hmm, in the 21st mm-hmm. century with blogs or social media or any sort of media that we engage in. And so... Um, but then also we're not called to have an influence on everything. Mm-hmm. We're called to have an influence on the people that we rub shoulders with. Now, there are some folks out there that I would say that the Lord is blessed with an influence that yeah. can be magnified yeah. by social media. No doubt. But we very rarely meet those people. Yeah. Um, and so it's if, if you're thinking that's me, it, it maybe it is, but it's probably not. <laughs> um, and so... Um, you know, we're overwhelmed with more information than we can rightfully handle, and we think we have more influence than we do. And it, both of those things violate our humanity and our embodied saltiness in, in light. Yeah. Um, and so that, I think that's a great point. The title of this episode should be, maybe it is, but it's probably not. <laughs> <laughs> you might go to the NFL, but you probably won't. <laughs> Yeah, that, those words might or might not have come out of my mouth. In the <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, good stuff, fellas, uh, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of TGC Midweek. Um, please join us next week as we continue our look through the Sermon on the Mount. If you've got questions about anything you heard today, or if you've got questions on the Sermon on the Mount you'd like us to address in a future episode of the show, you can email those questions to questions at trinitygracesa.org. 
We look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, we'll see you later.